Hi, TribCast listeners. We have a special episode for you today of our podcast called Point of Order, which is all about the Texas legislature. Hope you enjoy. I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the Texas legislature. This week, a special episode on the election that really matters. We're more than two months until the 87th session gavels in, and already, after a flurry of filings over the last week, the race for Speaker of the Texas House is in full swing. Never mind that we don't know which party will win the majority on Tuesday. It's a legitimate open question, no matter what some slay-for-pay political consultants tell reporters. Never mind that we don't know which state reps will be back at the Capitol. Whatever back at the Capitol means during a pandemic that's sure to upend everything conventional and familiar. Never mind that it's a job that a sane person might not want, since in all likelihood, this is going to be a five-month hot diaper with a down economy, a persistent public health crisis, and the delightful, not at all divisive, decennial exercise of map drawing, otherwise known as redistricting, just over the rise. Seven, count them, seven House members have stepped forward to date to declare their intention to seek the chamber's top job. Three Democrats, Sanfronia Thompson of Houston, Trey Martinez-Fisher of San Antonio, and Oscar Longoria of Mission, and four Republicans. Chris Patty of Marshall, Trent Ashby of Lufkin, John Sirier of Lexington, and Jeannie Morrison of Victoria. Their ranks will surely grow, perhaps by the time you hear this. This is a rare thing in the history of Texas, an open race for speaker, made possible by the tumultuous one-and-done exit of the current occupant of the office, Dennis Bonin, and so the wolves are circling. I say wolves in the most positive and respectful sense. How it will all shake out is anyone's guess. Pop some popcorn, folks. This is the fun part. And speaking of popcorn, to offer some kernels of wisdom, see what I did there, on all things speakers race, I'm so pleased to be joined by my pal and colleague, Ross Ramsey, co-founder and executive editor of the Texas Tribune. He can't say this, but I can. He's the smartest guy in Texas on matters related to our legislature and its politics. And there's no one I'd rather bullshit about this stuff with. So bullshit we will. Today, Friday, October 30th, day negative 74 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Circle, the mobile platform providing policymakers, citizens, and influencers the information they need to communicate and collaborate on state policy and governance. Go to the Apple or Google Play stores and type in C-I-R-Q-L to download the app today. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. Hi, Ross. Good morning. We'd be having this conversation if nobody was listening, wouldn't we? Uh, yeah, down to the hot diapers, I think. <laughs> um, Ross, is it early or late 
to, to see a speaker race get started. I was thinking it was early because there's so much that we don't know. But then I remember the last time we had a speaker's race, which was low those two years ago. And we actually had a number of candidates out in the field months before Election Day. And it was right after Election Day that Dennis Bonin right. locked this thing up. So maybe instead of being early, we're late. Well, we knew that uh, two years ago that the House was going to be a Republican House. We didn't know how thin the margin would actually end up, but we knew it would be a Republican House. Not even the most extravagant uh, postulations had the Democrats winning enough seats last time. It would have been 21 seats um, to take over the House. They won 12, which was surprising to a lot of people, including a fair number of Democrats. And this time they're trying to improve on that by nine. And the prospect is there, or at least the hesitation is there about the House's ability to, you know, whether it's going to be a a Republican or a Democratic majority. It's going to be close either way. Yeah. And so it's not presumptuous of Democrats or of Republicans to put their toes in the water here because it is possible that one party or another will have the majority. And so that's why we see candidates from both parties. Right. The the problem with putting your foot out is that you... um, Everybody knows you have your foot out. And so if it doesn't go your way, you're the victim of your own stunted ambition. Yeah, but who remembers that Drew Darby didn't become speaker last time or Ford Price didn't become speaker last time? At the end of the day, if this goes the way it ought to, all is forgiven, right? Ford Price Price ran for speaker and then ultimately got out and got out in a way that allowed him to become chairman of the calendars committee, right? I mean, that's that's the reality of it. Yeah, but look, this is really a very expensive student council election, and it's got only got 150 kids in the senior class, and they elect a president from among themselves, and it comes down to all kinds of things like who did this to whom, who pushed you off the slide in the third grade, who stole your boyfriend, all of those kinds of things play into this, and the memories are just as long as they were in high school, you know, who sits at yeah. that table in the cafeteria, that table in the cafeteria. It's not just a funny analogy, it actually sort of works that way. Ross, at presidential election time, we always say, intending this to be true, that every presidential election is about the next four years, when in reality, you and I both know, having watched this for so long, that it's about the last four years. Right. Uh, Every presidential election is about trying to solve a problem in the rearview mirror. And of course, this presidential election, one could argue, although that's not the topic of this podcast, is really about Trump. It's a referendum on the incumbent. It's not really a, a choice, as many elections would like to think they are. It's really a referendum. Is the problem that this speaker's race is trying to is the problem that this speaker's race is attempting to solve Dennis Bonin or the Bonin speakership or what? What is the theory of the problem that they're trying to solve? I think they're trying to solve the same problem they were trying to solve two years ago um, when they when they brought Dennis Bonin in in the first place. He had his episode and got bounced, but he was only here for one session. Right, and the circumstances. Have only changed a little bit. You know, really what you've got here is a very, very conservative Senate that is offset by a much more moderate House. I mean, as Republican as the House is, it's right. more moderate than the Senate is. And you've got the sort of natural sibling rivalry between the House and the Senate. And uh, you've got a governor who uh, doesn't really have legislative experience and only kind of half understands the House. You know, he follows, Greg Abbott follows Rick Perry, who of course was in the House for a long time and really sort of knew it down to its fingernails. Um, So we've got this kind of stumbling government. It's all Republican, but they've got little, you know, they've got some differences. The the Senate's very conservative. The House is moderate. The governor's not sure how to manage the two of them. And it kind of bounces along. The House wanted somebody strong who could stand up to Dan Patrick Dennis Bonin had that role in Joe Strauss's house, had that role right. in his own house. 
they got what they wanted there. They had some other problems right. with him, but I think they're still looking for some of the same things they were looking for two years ago. We, we can acknowledge you and I that um, that Dennis Bonham was a very successful speaker for his for, in his first term, right? I mean, he may have been the most successful speaker we've ever had. You know, he did stand up to Dan Patrick. It just turns out he couldn't stand up to Michael Quinn Sullivan, right? But he did stand up to Dan Patrick. He had a really good six months. I mean, that's really all it was. It's kind of amazing. You know, he was elected at the beginning of the 2019 legislative session. Uh, he had his famous conversation with Michael Quinn Sullivan that blew up and all of those kinds of things uh, a couple of months after the session, maybe maybe a month and a half after the session. Uh, but yeah, the session was pretty smooth. The House kind of got what it want, wanted. The governor was in a position where he wasn't really having to play um, footsie with the Senate as much as he had yeah. before because he had a House speaker that he um, talked to a lot and dealt with a lot. And, you know, there's a, you know, I have a younger brother and a younger sister and learned, you know, a little bit about politics from those two. It's always two to one somehow. Yeah. And the, the what had been a kind of a rough, relationship between the governor and the lieutenant governor turned into a much stronger relationship between the governor and the speaker last time. Right. And in, and let's also give Bonin credit because when you're the guy in charge, if things go well, you get to credit, uh, right. even if you don't deserve it. And, and I think in this case, he does deserve it because he was uh, pretty clear about his agenda at the beginning. Um, real progress was made on public education finance reform. Real progress was made on compression of property taxes locally. The mm -hmm. House's focus came from the speaker's focus. And so they put points on the board, right? And so the next speaker right. has that as a backdrop, right? You've got to think heading into any session, but especially we'll come to this in a little while, what's going to be a difficult session. Uh, can you possibly uh, have the same level of success as the last guy in the job did, right? You're always judged by the last guy in the job. He was during the legislative session sort of fulfilling the two jobs. The first one is um, you've got to face off the Senate with us and represent us over there. The second one is you've got to represent your folks. You've got to take care of yep. the members and, you know, they don't need to be worrying about uh, things coming up from behind them. That's why the conversation he had with Michael Quinn Sullivan was so damaging to him was because he seemed to be undermining his own members. That's a kind of a violation of the, of the pact that you have with the speaker. Yeah. All right. So we have seven people as you and I sit here today, Friday morning, October Is, is uh, it October only 30th. just seven? It, seems it only like is seven. I look away. There's five more. What's your over under on the number of candidates we're going to see before this is done? I think we'll see 10. Um, yeah. I think we're I think we're pretty close to where we're going to get. We've only got you know a few days until we actually know the composition of the electorate in this case. You know who are the 150 members of the of the senior class that are going to elect the student council president? Yeah, and that will eliminate some of the candidates. If it's a Democratic House, it's going to be a Democratic speaker, vice versa, Republican, Republican, and right. you know then we get down to very quickly who brings, yeah who brings the votes. And you know one of the interesting things here is. The Republicans have been in charge for so long that we know all of the secular, you know, sects and the um, sects with a CT, not with an X. Um, Thank know all God. Of the, all, all of the different factions in the Texas House and right. in the Republicans. But the Democrats are just as divided as they are. And I think sure. if the Democrats get the majority here and you send in, you can pick your favorite five or six Democratic leaders and send them into a room and say, don't come out until you agree on a speaker. They may never come out. Yeah, it's um, going to take a long time. I think that whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in charge, it's going to take a dozen right. or a dozen and a half votes from members of the other party to make a speaker. And, and you assume, I, I, we've passed over something that you said that I accept as, you know, kind of received wisdom. But 
if the Democrats have a majority, a narrow majority, it will be a Democratic speaker. There is zero chance that based on the math, if it's a, a, a you know, kind of a divided legislature, there is zero chance that somebody from the other party ends up making a deal with the devil and becoming speaker. And, you know, I wouldn't say zero, but I would say, you know, it would be a fatal error. Um, and, on the part know, of that party. What's the point of having the majority the part, if you don't have the speakership? I think on the part of the House. I think it would, I think yeah. it would disable the House from yeah. the get-go. Right. So let's talk about the Republicans first. So the Republicans right now are 8367. As you said, it got a lot closer at 2018's election cycle. It had been 9555, a near supermajority among Republicans, uh, uh, right? So they could, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. And it got a lot less interesting for them, or maybe a lot more interesting for us, depending upon how you look at it. Um, right. In the last for us, election. For them, right? Right. Um, so how much of the decision to get in this race is driven by the belief that the House is going to be so narrow that you need essentially a consensus choice, a 50 plus one choice. And how much of this is, hell yes, we represent the Republican brand. And even if we have you know, a majority that's similar to the one we have now or a little bit narrower, we're still gonna go team red all the way and we're not looking to make this a split the difference deal. Uh, we have an example. Uh, Joe Strauss was elected speaker in a house that was 76 Republicans, 74 Democrats. Indeed. It came down to the wire. It was December before we found out who won the race in Irving between Linda Harper Brown and Bob Romano. It was less than two dozen votes. If it right. had gone the other way, it would have been 75-75. Strauss was never in a position to win 76 Republicans because um, yep. one of them was Tom Craddock and he was the speaker and he wasn't giving it up. So you had to have Democratic right. votes. Uh, it's always been the case in the Texas legislature that the minority party gets some of the chairs. It's not a winner-take-all system like Congress is. So right. if you've got a Republican speaker, you've got some Democratic chairmen and chairwomen. Vice versa is true also. Um, so, And it's actually easier to govern the House if you don't have to worry about the parties. Most of the issues, probably two-thirds of them over there, aren't divided on, par on partisan grounds. You know, there's, yep. a, there's a bill to expand broadband internet in rural areas. That's not a Republican Democratic bill. That's a that's a business to business bill. Yeah. And you you'll take your 76 votes wherever you can find them. So actually starting off with a coalition speakership is an easier proposition than starting off with one that's ruled by the Democratic or Republican caucuses. So, so that's your theory of this case, which is whoever right. is speaker, Democrat or Republican, it's going to be a cross the aisle kind of speakership in the sense that you're going to need to court and need to work with people from the other party. I think that's exactly right. right. You know, when Craddock did this, you know, Tom Craddock was probably the most partisan speaker we've had in a long time. And even so, he had a group called the Craddock D's. Craddock D's. For yeah. Craddock, uh, you have to have, you have, to have uh, yeah. an arm over the, over the fence. So right now we have in this race, Chris Patty, we have Trent Ashby, we have John Syrier, we have Jeannie Morrison. Um, I'm not gonna speculate about who else gets in this race, but we may be feeling it pretty soon. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and there may be some more beyond that. So that uh, terrible. who's, no, it's not terrible. It's awesome. It's hashtag dad joke time. Uh, tell me who among the group of, uh, of people in the race or people who are likely to get in the race sets up as a person who could appeal to both his or her own party, but also the other party, right? So who could it be a speaker for the Republicans, but who the Democrats would not look at and go, yeah, no. Yeah, I think all of those are uh, more or less acceptable to the Democrats. I would kind of look at it in the negative sense first. Do you get vetoed by the other party? Um, and I don't think any of those 
really does that. Uh, Jeannie Morrison has morphed some. She was one of Craddock's close lieutenants and was regarded at one time as, you know, sort of the hardcore, you know, the if you're a, a Harry Potter fan, one of the Death Eaters in the house. And right. Back, back in the day, Jeannie Morrison the, was a conservative. Right. right. Well, yeah. she still is a conservative. Right. But, but she's she, a conservative by the standards of the old days. She's not Steve Toth. Come on. Right. 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 Yeah. right. So, but I think the Democrats, she's been around long enough. She has enough relationships. People, she's highly regarded, you know, and this is going to be true down the line. She's the best known of, of this bunch. Um, and she, let, I, let's, and let's say out loud, let's say the part out loud that you and I are both thinking, which is, this is a good year to be a woman running for speaker of either party, given the fact that the legislature has never had a woman presiding officer or a, a speaker of the house. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, I, I think that actually is a massive arrow in Chair Morrison's quiver in this race. Is it I, think that's, I think that's probably right. I, I, I would agree with that. She's acceptable to the Democrats. The Republicans like her. And that old reputation probably helps her some with the real conservatives in the House. It's like, well, she was with Craddock. Yeah. You know, comes down to it, the elders in the Republican Party's caucus are going to be with Morrison. And I think that helps. The yeah. Democrats who worked with her before are going to be with her. You know, that's, that makes her a, a real possibility. Yeah. Chris Patty was one of the five chairs, was he not, who came out toward the last part of Bonin's uh, attempt to hang on to his job and said, we think you need to go. Right. Does that put him in an adverse position with people who were Bonin's supporters and remain Bonin's supporters to the end? Yeah, I think one of the one of the aspects of the speaker's race is going to be how many people are still stinging from the fight at the end of the last speaker's tenure. You know, yeah. I mean, Dennis Bonin is still in office, but when he effectively decided he wasn't going to run again and wasn't going to seek another speakership, a lot of people felt like there were some scores to settle. And I think some of those are still around. And I think some of those scores being settled are still going to still going to turn up there. There are vestigial arguments here right. that are going to turn up in this race. So, I, you know, I think that's a strike against him or at least, you know, um, you know, a demerit. I don't know how strong it is. I don't know how big that faction's ultimately going to be, you know, ultimately in this, you're looking for, if you're just a member of the house, you're looking for a speaker who will a protect you represent against the Senate and who's going to give you something reasonable to do, give you a chance to do the things that you told your constituents you wanted to do, maybe give you some power, maybe feed your ambition a little bit. And, you know, ultimately this, uh, you know, their party plays a lot in this, but personal ambition, I think, of the 150 members plays a lot more. And, and the best candidates, by the yeah. way, are the ones who have a personal uh, relationship or knowledge of the most of the other members. Right. What's the elevator pitch for Ashby? What's the elevator pitch for Syria? Uh, I think part of it is um, ability to work both sides. You know, for, for Ashby in particular, he's been around for a while. Right. He started as a legislative aide to Jim Turner. You know, he kind of knows the kind of knows the ropes here. Um, and he's a creature of the house. Um, pretty well regarded, good guy, kind of a boy scout, you know, all of the, all of the good things, right? Um, and, an, and an education uh, specialist, right, or somebody who right. has uh, a particular expertise in what is always the number one issue in the legislature, and especially in a session where the budget's going to be bad, again, we'll come to that, and where last session they made significant investments in public education, you may want somebody in the chair right. who is knowledgeable about this thing that affects everybody's district, everybody's constituents, and that everybody cares about. Right. He's also got an advantage. You know, this is understated a little bit, but, you know, uh, speakers 
generally, not always, speakers generally don't come from big cities. Um, they don't right. come from Dallas and Houston. Um, Joe Strauss obviously came from San Antonio, but if you've got a rural speaker who doesn't have an allegiance geographically, you know, like a, like a city politician might, you know, sometimes that's helpful. Uh, but of course, you've got four rural candidates for speaker right now right. in the four who have announced. And uh, the fact on is the that Republican Texas, side, right. on the Republican side, and Texas is an urban state, you know, the transition of rural uh, Texas to urban Texas is one we talk about all the time. You know, something around 90% of Texas now lives east of Interstate Highway 35. The vast majority, 90% or more of the growth between now and 2050 is going to be in the metropolitan counties. Wouldn't it be strange to have a rural speaker for an urban state? Well, yes and no, because, you know, if you elect a speaker from, you know, just look at the triangle, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. Yeah. If you elect someone from one of the corners of the triangle, the other two corners are going to feel shut out. And, and one of the ways to get around that is to elect from outside the triangle. Um, so right. it's a way to, you know, you, you get a, a kind of a Switzerland effect. Uh, Syria, just to finish the thought, is new enough to the House that he has some of the advantage Joe Strauss had, which was that he doesn't have a record of slights that members can, you know, kind of add up and say, well, yeah, you remember that one time he did this, the one time he did that. Yeah. A clean slate is sometimes a big advantage in a speaker's race. Right. Or a blank slate blank is slate, one right. onto which you can project your hopes and dreams, but also for some people ideologically, right. a blank slate also is a security blanket because you just assume that they're with you if you have no evidence to the contrary, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I don't know that I would handicap the Republicans the same way I would the Democrats. We can get to that in a minute. The, yeah. the Republicans all start with one, each start with one vote. The person in the mirror in the morning. Yep. You know, you're in there doing your makeup or shaving. If anybody does makeup or shave during a pandemic anymore. Yeah. Uh, thinking, no. you know, I think no I may be, no. <laughs> yeah. I think I may be looking at the next speaker. And right. you know, every everybody starts with that story. The only person we know doesn't want to be speaker right now is for price. Right. But of course, if you recall, two years ago at this point, Dennis Bonin had oh, told I you recall. no. <laughs> Dennis Bonin told you no as well. And uh, I'm telling you that uh, I know for Price has said publicly that he won't be speaker, but I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Bonin, I'd never, you know, uh, the way Bonin said I don't want that job was kind of an indication to me that he did want that job. And I wrote a column that sort of sort of said that. It, he kind of pulled himself out of the race so he wouldn't get shot at and, you know, kept working and kept talking to people and saying, well, what would you like in a speaker? And what do you think of that guy? And what do you think of this one? Right. And all of a sudden he was the speaker. Yeah. So. Um, let me let me move over to the Democrats. So right now we have three Democrats in the race, Sanfronia Thompson, uh, we have uh, Trey Martinez-Fisher, and Oscar Longoria. Uh, let's talk about Mrs. T first. Uh, she is the second longest tenured serving member of the House, correct, behind Tom Craddock. Right. Elected in 1972 for you trivia buffs, the same year that Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate. Mrs. Nice. T was elected to the Texas House. She is more than two Briscoe Canes in age, right? <laughs> She's taller than two Briscoe She's Canes. also probably more than two Briscoe Canes in height. I'm glad you said it. Um, you'll be hearing from Mrs. Kane, not me, about that one. Um, Fine. Um, is Mrs. Thompson's longevity in the House a strength or a weakness or both? Both, I think. Um, she's the only candidate in this race who has more than one vote that we know of. Uh, the Houston Democrats in the Houston delegation and the, the Legislative Black Caucus members from the House have endorsed her. I think the number is 23. 23. So it's 23, got, indeed. Yeah. Got to get to 76. Um, right. 
that's a start. And it also makes you a dealer. If um, somebody else starts to rise and they're looking around for votes, yeah. uh, 23 votes in one pocket is a good place to start a negotiation. So, Is there anything about Mrs. Thompson's time in the House, her association with an issue or vertical expertise that she may have developed over time that positions her for this job right now? Or is this just most, it's her time? Well, I think there's a little bit of both. I think, you know, the it's her time thing uh, counts. I think the, you know, the House needs to heal a little bit counts. You know, she's a, she's a strong presence in the House, even when she's not in a leadership position, even when she's never been just a member. I mean, certainly not in my memory. Uh, she's always a presence in the House and somebody that everybody right. looks to for, you know, guidance and all of that kind of stuff. I think that all plays here. And if you need some, you know, calming in the House right now, she yep. feeds that. Um, she has the respect of the governor and the lieutenant governor. And by respect, I mean either respect or fear. Both work. Um, she's a fierce presence. So she would represent the House in that way. Um, let, let me say that a little bit more crudely than you're willing to say it. Neither the governor nor the lieutenant governor is going to fuck with Mrs. Thompson. I think that's probably right. Or they might both do it once. Um, which would be great for us. And it would be the, la it would be the last way. time that it ever happened, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that, to watch, wouldn't it? That, that's part of the thing about Mrs. Thompson that I'll say watching her over these last 30 years is she has some moral authority in everything she does. She is the voice of God, right, in, in everything that she does. And I think yeah. that she commands respect and fear in equal measure. And that is not nothing as currency goes. Yeah, she's centered. She knows who she is, and she's really tough as hell. Um, there was a former calendars chairman who was a big, brusque guy from Beaumont named Mark Stiles, and one time they sort of got into it at the back microphone and wrestled right. the back podium to the ground. Miss um, T won that fight. Stiles came around and apologized, and you know that's part of the right. that's part of the Symphonia Thompson legend. So she's yeah. kind of a legendary presence in the house. You get to go with someone as you say, who's an elder, and you're also choosing in that probably um, consciously or unconsciously, you're saying, I'm not choosing a 10-year speaker here. It's I'm a shorter-term deal for Mrs. Thompson, right? Speaker. Yeah. Um, for, would be the first woman, would be the first person of color to occupy that job, which is, again, significant right, right now. In the moment we're in, sure, that's a, good, that's a good deal. Does she get a single Republican vote? Yeah, it depends on how it falls. I think when you get to it, the Republicans are going to look at the Democrats. The Democrats have the House, let's say. Um, you get a couple of Democrats at the end, and the Republicans are going to look at them and say, which Democrat is um, the right. best for me? Or alternately, which Democrat is the least damaging to me? Uh, if you're a Republican, a Democrat who's not going to be in office for 10 years is a little bit less threatening than a Democrat who might be. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about Trey Martinez Fisher, uh, the Grover Cleveland of his district, right? Having uh, come back and serving non-consecutive terms. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that he's ambitious uh, enough to run for speaker. <laughs> Hilarious. Like shy, shy, Hilarious. Retiring guy. shy, retiring, yeah. no opinions. Yeah. And, um, and no one has an opinion about him, right? Yeah, he, he, you know, he, he does really well on the test of who would go face-to-face, nose-to-nose with the Senate. Uh, well, the, no the idea that Dennis Bonham was put in a job to not only extend a hand, but to make a fist. Right. That right. is Trey Martinez Fisher's brand, is it not? Right, right. Yeah. Um, it's also part of his brand that he shares with Dennis Bonham, that he's a bit of a hothead, and that sometimes he goes off and just goes off and, um, yep. you know, acts against his own interests sometimes. Um, I think the question here is going to be, you know, I. Uh, whether he can cross the lines, whether Republicans will vote for a guy who has been so fiercely 
representing the Democrats for so many years in tough negotiations with Republicans. He was the guy who was kind of the go-between for at least one session, maybe two, between then-Speaker Joe Strauss and the Democrats. He was kind of the guy who could go in and, hey, can you get me some votes? Can you present our side to them? Um, but I don't know whether he's the guy that the Republicans would look to as their favorite Democrat in a field. And of course, that always depends on who's in the field. But if they have a choice, I think, between a Symphronia Thompson and a Trey Martinez Fisher, he's got some, uh, he's going to have to read all the Dale Carnegie books to go into that fight. Uh, back to the idea of, for some people, this is a positive and, and a negative at the same time. Oscar Longoria, who is probably the least well-known of the three. An advantage. Um, an advantage. Uh, is also the person who is said to be, again, this is not slagging him, it's just saying it as it is, he is probably the preferred candidate of the Republicans among the Democrats, right? He is the guy right. who the Republicans look at and they go, I'm not sure I can get behind Mrs. T, at least at this point. I'm not sure I get behind Trey. I kind of like that Oscar Longoria. Right. And not from a city. Um, Correct. You know, not from, not from the not from, not the from triangle a big we city. Were talking about. Right. Not I mean, everyone's from, from someplace, but he's not from one of the big cities, right? He's not from the triangle we were talking about a minute ago. He doesn't, you know, doesn't make Dallas or Fort Worth or Dallas or uh, Houston nervous. Um, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing. The Republicans, a group of Republicans, I think it was 40 or so, met in Temple um, a weekend ago or two weekends ago. Seemed time is gone now, but, you know, sometime recently met. Yeah. And came out kind of generally talking. They didn't take any votes or anything, but a lot of them came out talking about, you know, Longoria wouldn't be bad if we had a Democratic speaker. One of the questions watching the Democrats is going to be whether you know, how the factions stick together. Are there block votes in this speaker's race? Or is it really a case sort of in the tradition of everybody votes for themselves and for their own personal ambitions and those kinds of things? Do the uh, black members of the Texas House stick together right. on a vote? Um, they've already endorsed, most of them have already endorsed Symphronia Thompson. Well, well I've been told that the women's, so-called women's block is meeting this weekend to have a conversation right. with not only the three members we mentioned, but two more I'll mention in a second to you who are presumed candidates to get in this race. Right. And they intend to stick together as a block. If we're talking about blocks, right. then we sort through this field more quickly than if it's essentially having to go pick off individual votes, is it not? Well, yeah, that's exactly where I was going. So, you know, do the... the um, Hispanic members stick together? Do the black members right. stick together? Do the white members stick together? Do the women stick together? How does this work? Um, I think that when you get down to it, you know, I think the, the women's block is pretty strong and has some men in it, actually, who think it's probably a pretty good time to have a female speaker um, and, um, you know, break the, break the mold that way. Um, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the House what exactly what problem the House is trying to solve. I think they need to do all the things that we've talked about, but they also want to get, you know, stabilized and yep. uh, they want a place at the table, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic House, and they want it to be a strong place at the table. So yep. they're going to send somebody in, you know, they want to, they want somebody who's a, in political terms, a gunslinger. Uh, speak, sticking with uh, Oscar Longoria for a second, he has been the vice chair of the Appropriations Committee, has he not? Yes. Last couple of sessions. Uh, a smart guy I know named Ross Ramsey, once told me that an appropriations committee chair, at least, will never be speaker because you've got to make too many calls that make other people unhappy. And then at the end of the day, that is not the route to the speakership. Is that the same for the vice chair? I don't think so. You know, the, the person that says no on the appropriations committee is the chair. And, you yeah. know, if you're a, you're a member of the House and you need a low water crossing in your district and the money's just not there and you go to the appropriations chair and that's that's the person who says no 
when that person comes around and asks for your vote for speaker, you'll say, you remember that low water crossing? Right. Uh, I don't think that happens to number two. Um, right. I think it helps him, particularly in a time like this, when you're talking about a hot diaper, one of the hottest things in that diaper is the next budget. Right. I think that helps. Um, but I think the next- Having week, experience around the budget helps. In other words, right. if you're somebody who actually can read the budget, knows how that process works, the appropriations process works, right. that can be an advantage if you're the guy in the chair. Right. And let me just say here, you know, put in my, my uh, tab for this idea. A lot of the people running for speaker are running not for speaker. They're running for chairmanships. Chair. And right. if you look at somebody and you say, you know, you can't promise a chairmanship or a position in return for a vote, but you can, you can say, you know, when I'm, if I'm elected speaker and I'm looking for an appropriations chair, you know, it'll probably be somebody like Oscar Longoria. I don't know that I could, I don't know that I would say him specifically, but these attributes, bang, 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 bang. Right. A lot of these guys are auditioning. And I think, you know, two people to watch in that regard um, in particular are um, Longoria and one of the two people you're going to mention in a minute. Right. Yeah. So as I said, on the Republican side, although I wasn't going to name names, I was feeling it. <laughs> on the Democratic side, I'm feeling a little moody. And it's also good to be the king. Right. Those are two people who it's assumed are going to get in this race. Well, see, I thought you were going to say Donna Howard, and um, my understanding—my I mean, understanding is that she is not going to run. Well, right, but her name's been mentioned in this, and I think yeah. the—you know—I think she's—if uh, the Democrats win, I think she's certainly a leading candidate for appropriations chair. Uh, she's been right. on appropriations for a long time. Uh, the Democrats like her. The Republicans like her. Well, she's uh, very smart. I think the Republicans, whether they may not—they may not agree with everything that she believes, right? Right. But they—I think they respect the fact that game recognizes game. Right. They, they well, and I think she's fair. And that's, you know, that, yeah. that's a lot of it. Um, um, uh, so so uh, Moody King, you and I had a conversation last night about another potential entrant into this race rhymes with Ina Minharis. Um, uh, you know, there are a couple of other people who are being mentioned. The fact is that we are going to have more Democrats in this race, are we not? I think so. I think so. I, you know, on Tuesday, we may shut them down. I mean, if they don't get nine seats, they, you know, all those right. names disappear. Or, or conversely, if the Democrats right. end up taking the House... Right. Have to see. So that's actually a good transition as we begin to wind down here, although not exactly. Before you do that, there's a meeting on Wednesday. Yes. At one o'clock among the Democrats. Wednesday following the election for Wednesday for November. Yes. Right. Right. You know, sit down and um, or sit down or stand up and yell at each other or sit down and reason together or, you know, whatever they're going to do. But I don't expect a speaker necessarily to walk out of there, but I expect the battle to take shape there if the Democrats have the House. Well, it's a perfect transition into the conversation about what's going to happen on Tuesday, which I think you and I both will sit here and say with straight faces, we legitimately do not know what's going to happen, right? Right. My I mean, for, all the, for all the talk that some have, um, you know, some have said, oh, there's zero chance that the House is going to flip. I mean, come thank, on. Thank you, Dave Carney. Right? Come on. <laughs> now, we don't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, it really is a legitimate, op- as I said, it's a legitimate open question right. about what's going to happen. I had a right. Republican consultant say to me in the last couple of days that if we just looked at early voting through the middle of this week, based on his crunching of the numbers, Democrats would win 15 seats. 15! Net. Yep. But on the other hand, you can look at, you know, um, you can look at the numbers uh, that Derek Ryan does and the number of people who voted in Repu- number of voters who voted in uh, one of the last four, one or more of the last four Republican primaries outnumber the yep. Democratic primaries. Right. 
uh, almost three to two. So well, but of course you also, but of course you also have a significant number of votes of people this cycle who have no history voting in Texas, no general election history. I mean, I think I think that the thing that we don't know is what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know a whole lot. (laughs) Yeah. What is your sense as you sit here today? If you're (laughs) held held it at at, at gunpoint, what is your sense of what's going to happen? You know, I, I. if Biden wins, I think that would be a surprise. That would be an upset. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I, that's that's a way of saying I think Trump's favored in that race. Yeah, but I'm talking about the House specifically, uh, but maybe that's actually tied to well, the outcome at the top. That, there's a reason I mentioned that race. Yeah. I think if, yeah. if Biden were to win Texas, I think that, you know, the Democrats' dreams of taking the House are much more realistic than if Trump wins. And It's unlikely uh, that Biden wins, but the Republicans hold the House. I think it's less likely. Uh, less likely. I, think it's, I think it's very difficult in the current redistricting maps for Democrats to advance much more. You know, they, these maps were drawn by and for Republicans. Uh, they obviously changed. Our demographics have changed. Our right. suburbs have gotten purpler. Some of them have gotten blue. Fort Bend, um, uh, maybe Williamson. Um, and right. And um, the question is uh, whether you can do nine seats better than you did in your best year in two decades. You know, they did really yeah. well in 2018, won 12 right. seats. They won three or four seats that, like I said before, even the Democrats didn't expect to win. They've not only got to hold those, they've got to improve by nine. On right. That. But the difference, and, Ross, and that's, isn't a, the- that's, a, that's a stretch. It's certainly yeah. possible. And if it's a yeah. big Democratic year, it could right. happen, but it's a stretch. But isn't the difference between that election and this election, the difference between that election and this election? Well, one, the, one, one big difference. people, I think, looks well, like. Well, if you had 8.3 million turnout as you did in 2018 and you end up with 12 million this time, doesn't that increase by 50% in turnout mean that the frame that you regard 2018 is not the same frame in 2020? And the population of Texas has changed materially in the last two years, right? I mean, I right. went back and looked by at all the counties, won by Obama in 08, Obama in 12, Clinton in 16, and then Beto O'Rourke in 18. Uh-huh. The fact is that there are a handful of counties that Beto O'Rourke won that none of those uh, previous, uh, Obama, Obama, Clinton won. Beto won Tarrant County. Since 1952, only one Democratic candidate for president has won Tarrant County, LBJ, in 1964. Obama lost it twice. Clinton lost it twice. Beto won. What happens right. if Biden wins Tarrant County? Williamson County, Hayes County. Beto won both of those. Hell, Lupe Valdez won Hayes County in right. 2018. If Biden doesn't win Hayes County, that's going to be a big step back for them. We don't know what's happening up in Collin and Denton counties. But goodness right. gracious, if Collin and Denton counties went blue this time, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I think 2018 is a good year to look at as a frame, as a backstop for looking at 2020. But 2020 is different from 2018. Right. And, you know, we're testing this theory that the Democrats have held for a long time, that the dormant part of the voting age population is more Democratic than the people who actually vote. And that if more people vote, that the state gets bluer and bluer as the number of voters go up. That's an untested proposition. Uh, well, except and, 2018 and that, but, sort of tested it because when you had the bigger turnout in 2018 versus 2014, you had Beto O'Rourke running within three points of, of uh, Ted Cruz. You, all, you also had the variable of two candidates spending 160 or $170 million on one race. Right. You, know, you know, that's not necessarily party. That's just, you know, two charismatic candidates Banging on, banging each other on the head. We're going to test the proposition this time. I think we're going to right. get eleven or twelve million votes, and we'll know some of the answers to this. Is this a speaker's race that will produce a candidate who will be happy to have won? 
When you get into the next session and you see that the budget sucks, that redistricting, which is no fun to be the leader of because it's a thing that divides everybody and gets everybody mad over the rise that's coming. Um, you're going to have this problem of the 11.6 billion that you allocated for school finance reform, including the property tax compression. That was only a two-year allocation, and so all of a sudden now you got to find that money. Otherwise, right. you're cutting pre-K, you're cutting teacher salaries, you're cutting the allotment per student. You have all these other issue advocates who said, "Okay, we're going to chill in 19 and wait until 21, and that's going to be our session." And now it's Lord of the Flies, with right. everybody just fighting with each other to get what they had or to keep what they've got. There's no new money. Who wants to be speaker in that situation? There's always the situation like this, right? You win, they put you up on your litter, up on their shoulders, they give you a crown, an orb, a scepter, a big office, and then they say, oh yeah, this bag of crap is yours. <laughs> right. But they run for these jobs and you run, you know, the people that run for these jobs run toward problems. And, you know, uh, Joe Strauss got elected into a situation, we were coming out of the, um, the giant mortgage flap, you know, we're right, yeah. doing all of that. Uh, Tom Craddock came in after the dot-com stuff. I mean, there's always something. Um, yeah. But they like to run toward these problems. And if you run toward these problems and you get some real solutions and you protect the members in doing it, then, you know, you become uh, an honorable and famous speaker. Uh, the sad thing about this job is most of the time the speakership in Texas doesn't lead anywhere. So um, yeah. it's, it's rare. A, it's for, a, a leap, a lily pad, not a leap pad, as you've said uh, yourself, right? It's Yeah, it's pretty far from all the other lily pads. You've got to be a pretty good frog to jump to the next spot. Um, right. So far, we haven't found that frog. So, you know, to some extent, this is a valedictory, but, um, but it's, you know, it's also right in the middle of the battle. And if you're the type of politician that wants to be right in the middle of everything, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get a, a better place for it. Okay, Ross, we're going to know soon enough. Thanks so much. Thank you. See you. You've been listening to Point of Order a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Ross Ramsey, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Circle and Raise Your Hand Texas. If you enjoy the Tribune's deep coverage of policy and politics, consider supporting our nonpartisan nonprofit newsroom at texastribune.org join. And please tell your friends to do the same. Keep your ears out for more special episodes of Point of Order as news and circumstances warrant between now and January. Until then, I'm Evan Smith.